Hello, I'm Carl Helliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Alice George, the author of Awaiting Armageddon. Alice, welcome to Thank Book you. Chat. Uh, first, Alice, before we get to the book, uh, tell us a little about yourself. Where, where do you live, and where do you work, and is this your first book? Okay. I uh, live in Philadelphia. I've lived in Philadelphia for about 13 years. And I came here as a journalist. I worked as a newspaper editor for about 20 years. I worked last at the Daily News. And uh, then I decided that I wanted to get my PhD in history, which I did in 2001 from Temple. And this is my first book. It's the product of my dissertation. Fine. Uh, what made you interested in this uh, subject, which, incidentally, for our audience, this is a subtitle will tell it all, How Americans Face the Cuban Missile Crisis. How did you get uh, interested in this subject? It was rooted in my childhood memories of terror of nuclear war. Uh, I was very concerned about it as a small child. We, we had drills where we ran home from school and pretended that a nuclear attack had happened. And uh, during the missile crisis, my principal called the teachers to his office and had the teachers tell us that we might have to rush home because nuclear war might start at any minute. And that stuck with me <laughs> until now. And that has kept me interested in the book's, the book's real focus is the civilian response, which nobody has explored. And I was very interested in that because I knew what my response was. And, and, and did your response have anything to do with the interesting title you chose for the book, Awaiting Armageddon? Well, t I chose that because I felt that it was a unique moment in American history. It had some parallels to September 11th, but a sense that Americans had for the first time of really being vulnerable to war and to destruction of their homes and their civilization even. And uh, I th thought the uniqueness of that seemed to fit with the idea of Armageddon. And because at that time, scientists were guessing that a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union would not harm people in the Southern Hemisphere. They weren't 100% sure of that. And so there was always the sense that perhaps a nuclear war would be a doomsday for the whole planet. Yeah, most of your book, and it's a very, very good book. It's not only authoritative, it's very, very uh, interesting and, and fun to read. Most of it, of course, deals with the uh, domestic response to the missile crisis. But can you spend a little time with us and uh, set the stage for us? What what led to the missile crisis diplomatically and in terms of international relations? At this time, the United States and the Soviet Union were the two big superpowers, each of which had a group of allies lined up behind it. And although the two countries were considered to be sort of equal enemies, the truth was that the United States was much better armed than the Soviet Union. And the United States had many more weapons pointed at the Soviet Union. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev, for reasonable uh, uh, principles, felt this was not a good idea. And uh, so Khrushchev saw a, an answer to two problems. He 
he saw that if he put missiles in Cuba, that he could use less expensive, shorter range missiles to reach a distant enemy, the United States. And second, both Nikita Khrushchev and Fidel Castro knew that the Kennedy administration was somewhat obsessed with Cuba and felt that there was a real possibility that the United States might invade Cuba and they thought the presence of missiles there might deter, deter an American invasion. Fine, and uh, of course, 1963, there's, um, it was the, uh, of course, the, the trauma of uh, President Kennedy's assassination, and this has been a, a real bumper year for books on John F. Kennedy. And uh, uh, Kennedy's, at least in terms of historians, seem to take different views on was he a good leader, was he a bad leader. Can you explain some of these positions? And, and what's your, as a historian, what is your position on his leadership? Okay, he's, he's certainly, his, his image in history has changed over the years. Immediately after the assassination, there was a lot of hero worship, which was a natural emotional response uh, to his, his violent death. And uh, so the first few historical accounts of the Kennedy administration were written primarily by journalists or administration officials who had known him quite, quite well, and they saw the missile crisis as his finest moment and felt that he had handled it brilliantly and that's the story they told. Later, when the assassination became a more distant memory, historians started looking at the missile crisis in particular differently. And some believed that Kennedy himself had heightened the crisis and risked a nuclear war because he chose to confront, con confront Nikita Khrushchev publicly rather than privately negotiating for the removal of Soviet missiles in Cuba. And some historians felt he was, that was a reckless approach, that he should have worked behind the scenes to solve the problem. However, in the last 15 years, as the Cold War ended and papers had become declassified, and as members of the Kennedy administration and even the Khrushchev administration and the Castro administration have begun to talk about the crisis, it's become clear that Kennedy was far more careful than anybody knew. Uh, I mean, probably Robert Kennedy knew how careful he was being, but most members even of his administration did not know the compromises he was willing to make to, to keep the peace. And so were the most recent historical accounts of his administration see him as someone who grew in the office and who handled the crisis with appropriate caution. And his tough rhetoric against the Soviet Union was mostly what was required of him from a political perspective. He did what he needed to do to make the American people feel that he was taking a tough stand, but he also worked very hard to make sure that a war did not begin. I know, and uh, uh, I think the best book of Kennedy this year, I think certainly is Robert Dalek's An Unfinished Life, and that's just exactly the stance that uh, Dr. Dalek stands giving uh, Kennedy uh, a lot of credit for acting very cool under the uh, crisis situation, not being buffaloed by the more uh, bellicose uh, defense uh, <clears throat> military uh, arm of the people who were advising him at this time.
You have an interesting comment in the book, Alice, and I'm not exactly sure what it means, so I'm going to ask you what you meant this by this. It says, you say the missile crisis was a dangerous intersection between Cold War culture and nuclear politics. What exactly does that mean? Cold War culture required Americans to see the world in black and white and to see the United States as good and the Soviet Union as evil. This is a very simple framework for politics, but when you attach it to the prospect of a catastrophic war which could, could kill millions, it's very dangerous to honestly believe that your enemy is totally evil is the kind of thing that makes you think about preemptive strikes or makes you assume that any little misstep by your enemy is something with sinister uh, reasons behind it. And I think President Kennedy found that was true because his military advisors did not trust the Soviet Union would do the right thing at all. And I think they were more willing to play the nuclear card than Kennedy was because he was thinking about the people who'd be killed and they were thinking about the missiles that would be wiped out. And so that's what I meant by it. Uh, there were also the other avenues within American culture that were also spreading this rumor or myth that the Soviets were totally evil and Americans were totally good. What were some of those uh, approaches, uh, venues, I, I guess it would be a better word? Well, I think it's interesting, even in um, Catholic churches during this period, in the back of the church, they would have comic books that taught children that communists were evil and that communists wanted to invade their lives, wanted to separate their families. Uh, it was just a pervasive message that was also in uh, books, certainly there were a lot of books that painted the communists as the ultimate evil. And uh, movies and TV also picked up this theme, particularly in the 50s. And so by 1962, most Americans did see the communists as fitting this stereotype. Right. Uh, one thing that, it, uh, among the many things that your book is very good, good about, talking about the failures of civil defense. Uh, exactly what did the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis tell us about the state of American civil defense? Uh, what it told us was that we were not in any way ready for nuclear war, if it is possible to be ready for nuclear war, and that question really has never been answered. Uh, we had underground bunkers for government leaders, uh, both, both the president and the Supreme Court would be housed in one bunker and the Congress would be housed in another underground bunker. And these bunkers were believed to be blast proof so that even if a bomb went off nearby, the chance, the theory was that they would survive. For all the other Americans, no such promise existed. Uh, there were no blast-proof shelters for ordinary Americans. The only kind of protection offered for ordinary Americans was fallout shelters, which would protect them from the fallout, the radioactive fallout that came from a nuclear weapon. If they lived in a city that was hit by a nuclear bomb, they were going to die anyway. 
but if they lived 40 miles away and they had a fallout shelter, they might survive. And uh, so the, the protection that was offered to Americans was not great. And during the missile crisis, the real truth came out, which was that in many cities, shelters had been marked. Very few cities had enough shelters. Almost none of the shelters nationwide had been stocked with food and water. So if the Cuban Missile Crisis had started a nuclear war, there would have been people crowded into subways and, and basements of office buildings, and they would have had no food, no water, no medical equipment. And, and that is really a bigger nightmare almost than, than you know, being outside during a nuclear <laughs> war, right. being trapped in such a small area and not having the means for survival. And this became very clear to the Kennedy administration as they rushed around trying to correct the situation. At the same time, Kennedy did not want to cause panic, so he asked that no overt changes be made that would frighten the public. So the steps that were taken during the crisis were, let's try to get more shelters marked, let's try to ship out the supplies, but let's not make the activity look frantic. Right. Uh, you know, we talk about in American history, at least the prevailing view or the common view, is that a cynicism towards government started with the Vietnam War. But actually, it probably started before this with such things like this, the, the uh, response of defense in, when Americans realized they weren't really being watched out by their government. I believe so. I, I don't, you know, there's not a lot of research to trace that and show us that that's definitely the case. But I think... It's interesting that public interest in civil defense plummeted after the missile crisis, which I think is a result of people realizing that it really was sort of a shell game and that it was not going to save their lives. And I think that while President Kennedy faced a lot less cynicism than President Bush does today, there were questions after the crisis that came up about you know how things were handled and whether the, whether the government should have been trusted as absolutely as it was by some people. Right. Well, uh, as the picture has been uh, portrayed of communist all bad Americans all good, of course the uh, lead evil figure would have to be Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, what role did uh, Khrushchev play in precipitating and ending the crisis? Khrushchev's decision to put the missiles in Cuba to begin with was a very big gamble, but he thought if he put missiles in Cuba and if the Americans didn't see them until they were already there, that the Americans would live with the fact that there were missiles in Cuba because the United States had missiles in Turkey, which were very close to the Soviet Union, and he thought the two situations were comparable. But... His gamble didn't work because American spy planes saw the missiles before they were finished. Then Khrushchev initially reacted rebelliously when Kennedy said, we're going to put a blockade around Cuba and we're not going to allow any more missiles through. Then Khrushchev uh, at first said, we'll run the blockade, but he ultimately did the right thing yeah. and pulled the missiles out. What was uh, Khrushchev's role as the Soviet premier in actually ending the crisis? 
what happened was that Khrushchev apparently became concerned that there might be a military coup in the United States. This is mentioned briefly in one of his uh, autobiographical books. And he realized that Kennedy was a young president. He didn't want to risk war. So he was willing to deal, and Kennedy was secretly willing to deal. So they made a secret agreement, which was the United States would promise not to invade Cuba, which was a big deal to, to Khrushchev. He felt like that was a significant promise. And the second thing was that the U.S. would withdraw its missiles from Turkey, which were really obsolete anyway. And so the United States didn't give up a lot. But the deal of removing the missiles from Turkey remained secret for about, for more than 10 years. And because Kennedy knew that a lot of Americans would have felt that he had retreated and that that was an unsatisfactory compromise, in the long run, Khrushchev looks, comes out looking pretty good because he was, like Kennedy, very, very aware of the dangers of war. And in spite of what the people around him were saying, he took the more careful course. But as a result, he did end up losing his job about a year Eventually, later, wasn't yes, it? Yes, he know, did. Um, the possibility of nuclear war was especially traumatic for children at this time. What long-term impact did the crisis have on young children? Well, there haven't been a lot of studies done on this, but there were some surveys done during the missile crisis that showed that American children were very aware of what was going on and they were not being shielded from the news. And in fact, some schools accelerated the number of drills that they had per week during the crisis. So that, again, brought home the message that nuclear war might start at any minute. It's difficult to clearly trace a pattern from the missile crisis to the uproar that happened in the late 60s when these same children grew into teenagers and young adults and opposed the Vietnam War. But I think there's some connection there and that living through an experience where they literally thought, tomorrow I may not wake up because tomorrow a nuclear war may have destroyed the country certainly affected the political perspective of these young people. There were protests during the missile crisis, and those protests were forerunners of what happened later when Vietnam came along. And it wasn't uh, only with the uh, children either. We see the uh, emergences of some very uh, vital protest groups at this time, groups like SANE mm -hmm. and Women's Strike for Peace. Can you tell us a little bit about those groups? SANE was primarily an adult intellectual group, although it had college students involved until college students started organizing themselves. Uh, and Women's Strike for Peace was, unlike most peace organizations, uh, housewives primarily and mothers. Who, and both groups made the case that the United States and the Soviet Union should stop nuclear tests in the Earth's atmosphere because the fallout from the tests was potentially damaging to their children. Some of the fallout got into plants that cows ate and then got into milk that children drank. And so Women's Strike for Peace was unique because these women dressed up like they were going to, to a book club meeting or something and then went walked on a picket line. And both of these groups opposed nuclear armaments and urged both countries to cut back on their nuclear armaments as well as their 
tests. And during the missile crisis, both groups protested. The Women's Strike for Peace tried very hard to find the middle road, and it protested both the Soviet position and the American position uh, because it felt both countries had crossed the line. Right. Uh, and your book has many, many, uh, some humorous, some only humorous in hindsight anecdotes about people confronting the crisis. Were there any that stood out in your mind is especially memorable? There were a lot, actually. And, and that, to me, was one of the mo more interesting things. One of the things that really sparked me to write the book was a small item I'd seen. It was an article about the, the Queen Mary, this, the, the cruise ship, and how the people on the ship found out about the crisis days after it had started and how they reacted to it. But there was, a, for instance, there was a woman in South Florida whose husband was in the Navy, and he had told her to get the kids out of South Florida, and she was stopped for a routine traffic stop, and she told the officer who stopped her, you know, that she was in a hurry, that her husband had told her to get out of Florida, and she said, I have to get the kids and myself out of Florida, and the officer looked in the back seat and said, what kids? And she had been so panicked that she'd left the children at home. There were also people who went, who flooded supermarkets, and they would buy jars and jars of coffee, but no water to make the coffee with, uh, as if they thought in a nuclear war they would still have water. Um, it was, there were people who hid from the threat of nuclear war. There was a young man who was in the Navy who got a day off and went to New York and stayed in museums all day so that he would not have to hear the news because it was so frightening. And uh, there was an example uh, of a, a college at which, at which girls were told not to sacrifice their virtue to, to boys who claim it's almost the end of the world and you really should go ahead and, and you know, let's make love kind of thing. And, and apparently that was not uncommon either. I just have to interject in your book, that was my alma mater. That was Westchester at the time, Westchester State College. So thanks for putting Westchester on the map like sure. that. <laughs> we have uh, time probably just for one more question, okay. Alice, in this very fascinating book and very fascinating interview. But what changes in American society do you think that the crisis brought about? And, and if what did we learn from the crisis? I think the biggest thing is President Kennedy really coming out of the crisis embraced the idea that we could coexist peacefully with the Soviet Union, which was a step away from the black and white way of viewing the world and that, yes, we can disagree with their political position, but we can live with them. And he made that stand in the summer of 1963. And I think that that stand has pretty, pretty much stood uh, up until the end of the Cold War. There were a few times when Ronald Reagan made some tough speeches, but in general, we were able to get along. And, and it seems like such an easy thing to be able to get along now, but back then that was a revolutionary step. Yes, and uh, as the title of your book tells us, it was a very important lesson that came out of a very trying time. Dr. Alice George, thank you for joining us today on Book Chat and discussing your excellent awaiting Armageddon, which is available at the library. I'm Carl Halliker, and we'll see you again on Book Chat.